0: Good to be back in the house of the Lord. Uh, tonight we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. I saw that Stuffdinno said 14, but it's 15. We did 14 two weeks ago. I hope the movie went well while we were gone. And uh, I know that movie has had a lot more legs than anybody expected it would. And uh, that's a good thing because I think it tells the story of Calvary Chapel very well. Well, tonight uh, in chapter 15, In my Bible it's subtitled The Song of Moses and uh, if you recall where we were two weeks ago um, in chapter 14 we were at the Red Sea crossing where you know they're pinned up against the Red Sea the Egyptian army is descending upon them and uh, Pharaoh believes aha I finally have them where I want them Uh, the, the, the children of Israel are kind of grumbling like oh my gosh we're We've been led into a a trap. And then the Lord, of course, delivers them in a way that uh, still is one of the great miracles of all of the Bible. And um, the very next thing we see in the narrative is Moses offering up this beautiful song. And so I thought before we actually start to deconstruct the the chapter, that we would spend a moment just on the connection between song... And in song, I'd say spiritual songs, hymns, psalms, and how they fit into the life of of a person of God. For example, Paul the Apostle wrote this in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 and 19. He said, do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart, to the Lord. And then he wrote to the Colossian church in Colossians 3:16, "Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord." Now these are just two representative samples of passages from scripture that give you the clear impression that the Lord's expectation And also his design of our nature is that we would sing to him in praise and in thanksgiving. And that we would sing amongst the body of God's people to one another as a way of encouraging ourselves, as a way of memorializing the mighty things that God has done in our lives. And of course, the the vehicle by which we do this is music. Music has a unique ability to move us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I mean, physically, it's obvious. You put on music with a certain cadence, with a certain beat, and just watch people in the room, and they cannot keep still. You, you know that this, is, that this is inbred or ingrained in us by putting music on in a room with children little toddlers and they they haven't been taught anything they haven't been shown they don't have an experience or a body of knowledge about how to react to music and that music comes on and they're moving some of them moving better than others but they're moving uh it, it affects them physically uh we know that for centuries for millennia armies have used music as a way of physically synchronizing their troops right Uh, use it as a way to spur their troops on. Uh, Certain music was used when they were in attack. Certain music was used when they were in retreat and all of that. um, Music moves us emotionally. Could you imagine watching movies that have dialogue but no music? This is the thing that used to kind of one of those little things that you have in your marriage with your spouse where one of you has one preference, the other has another preference. If we start a movie, Michelle just wants to blow by all the credits, blow by all the opening music, let's just get to the action. I want to hear the music at the beginning because a lot of times movies track with what musicals did. With every musical or even with an opera or with a symphonic piece, the beginning part is the overture. And if you listen to an overture, what you have is a representative sampling of all of the moods that you're going to experience over the course of that show. And I love that. It really puts you in into the mindset of what you're about to experience. This is clearly a case of using mu- music to, to move us emotionally. And so the Lord has given us different forms of, of music and song as part of our Christian life, it's vital to our Christian life. Believe me, um, you know, for pastors who are musicians, and of course, we've got three of them here: myself, Jeff, and Vince. We're pastor teachers, but we're also musicians. And it's troubling for people like us to watch people who use the worship time as a grace period to get to church. You know, it's like, well, they're just doing the music now. We'll get there at like you know, ten twenty-five. We're good. No, you're missing out on the opportunity to have your body, your mind and your spirit in tune with the Lord so that when the teaching comes, you're ready to receive it. You know, it's it's like the overture. It's It's, it's something that I think is very important. And so the Lord has given us, he's given us spiritual songs, which we sing on a Sunday. They're not hymns necessarily although sometimes we sing hymns they're certainly not psalms although this week in fact we will be singing a psalm but they're spiritual songs because we're singing about the lord we're singing to the lord and so they're expressions of praise they're expressions of worship and then there are hymns and hymns are songs that give praise give honor give thanksgiving to god um hymns are very important because many of the traditional hymns have been written By theologians, by uh, very well-equipped senior pastor, teacher types who put to music and put to verse scripture, doctrinal truths of scripture. And let's face it, not everybody has the capacity or the appetite to be a diligent student in the word of God. I love that. I mean, and many of, obviously, if you're here, you're one of those people that likes to dig in. But that not everybody's wired that way. And so there is a, a pretty large portion of the body of Christ who gets most of their theology through the music that they're listening. And if they're listening to and digesting Christian hymns, they are getting really good, good doctrinal material. And then, of course, there's the Psalms. Now, what distinguishes the Psalms from hymns and spiritual songs like we might sing on a Sunday is that the Psalms have as its their author the Holy Spirit of God. Now obviously the Holy Spirit of God used human agents like David, like Solomon, like Moses, like the sons of Korah, like Asaph. These these are individuals that God used to express things that God wanted to be in codified in scripture but coming through the the humanity of the individual agent that God, the human agent that God used to put pen to paper and these are part of the canon of scripture and so they have a distinction that sets them apart from hymns or spiritual songs but all of this music is vital in our Christian experience it it, it communicates the love of god it communicates to us the attributes of god it gives us an opportunity to express back to god in a way that's pleasing to him how we feel about him how we see his glory his magnificence his peace his provision his protection of us and so we are created to use music for spiritual expression this is a very very important part of our life as christians and i i honestly i really hope you see it that way i know some people um really uh, and may, you know I, I have to say maybe some of the blame is laid at where some of the modern christian music goes uh not all modern christian music i believe is suitable to be sung in a church um it can be entertaining. It could thematically be more pleasing to a Christian because it's not some of the dark or nonsensical themes of today's music. But a lot of the musical structure of modern Christian music, frankly, it's just aping popular music in the secular world. And so, you know, there's good Christian music and there's bad Christian music. It doesn't make it good just because it has Christian themes. Some of that music is just not really great, um, But there is some good stuff out there. We we try our best to find stuff when we incorporate them into our worship here that is Christ-directed, that is speaking us speaking to him about who he is or magnifying who he is uh, or or giving thanks for what he's done in our lives. These are the kind of themes that we, we look to share. And so we see here a beautiful example of a song of Moses. And you could consider this a psalm in the sense that it is Holy Spirit directed. It's here in the canon of scripture. And it echoes a lot of the themes that you find in the psalms. In fact, some of the terminology in this song you find verbatim in some of the psalms that were written later. And so uh, let's look at Psalm uh, the song of Moses that's here in chapter 15 and let's read the first five verses and you could consider that like the first stanza of this song then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke saying I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously the horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea the Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Now, it's interesting that here is a group of people who have just experienced a miraculous deliverance. They have been chased by one of the most powerful, if not the most powerful army in the world of that time, the the most technologically advanced army of their time, and uh, with a purpose to either kill them or capture them and bring them back into bondage. And they had no means of escape. They were backed up to the sea. And there was nothing they could do to save themselves And then the Lord delivered them. And the next and natural, next thing that happens is they issue forth with song. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song. This is a remarkable song uh, to have come spontaneously from Moses at this time, but it is a byproduct of the total thanksgiving, the total awe and wonder at the power of their God. You know, we we're pretty. the people in this room, I look around, you're all pretty well seasoned in the Lord. You're deep in the Lord. You know the, the word of God well. You've been walking with the Lord for a good long time. But I guarantee you, every one of us on any given day can have and have had our minds blown by things that the Lord does at any given time as we go through our chronology of life. Where the Lord will do something and we'll just say, I know you're God and I know you love me. But that blows my mind. And, and this is where God, I, I think he cherishes. I think he prizes. He, he loves spontaneous, profuse worship of him. He He desires. God is a jealous God. He's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us. And I don't know about you, but when I was raising my three sons, there was nothing that delighted me more than their appreciation of something I did for them. I think too often nowadays, uh, youth is not appreciative enough of what their parents provide what they sacrifice what they do but there were times in my life as a dad as I raised my sons where my wife and I would would put ourselves out there to make something better for them or to help them with something or to do something for them or just to delight them gratuitously graciously and the their reaction back their joy the the love of that uh, I don't know if you remember this is just an example but At a time many, many years ago in a galaxy far away, a toy came out called the Nintendo Game Boy. Every kid wanted a Nintendo Game Boy. We were living in Belgium at the time. People in Belgium didn't have the opportunity to get those things, and that's where we were. And I went home for a business trip, and it was around Christmas, so I bought three Game Boys, put them in my luggage, and came back. And if you could have seen those boys... When, I, when we made those available to them on that Christmas, you would think I parted the Red Sea. I mean, it was, it was an amazing thing. But, but here they are, and they, they experienced this, and now they're singing back to the Lord, God, you are awesome. You did this for us. You didn't have to, but you wanted to, and you did. And this kind of profuse, spontaneous praise you find throughout the Bible, typically on the heels of a miraculous deliverance or or victory in battle. Here's a perfect example. This is found in Psalm 40. And uh, the first five verses, this is a Psalm of David. And David is writing, I waited patiently for the Lord. And he inclined to me and heard my cry. I mean, isn't that wonderful when we know that God has heard our cry? I mean, when we're in the will of God, he hears our cry. But isn't it that much more wonderful when deliverance follows what he hears? He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth. You see how that works? The deliverance puts the song in his mouth. It comes out in profuse praise because that is the natural reaction to experiencing the goodness of God and recognizing it for what it is. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works, which you have done. And your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak them, they are more than can be numbered. I read those verses there and I see my life. I see the reason for me to sing every word of that song because my life has been that kind of deliverance being in miry clay, being in a deep, horrible pit, being in the darkness of sin, being in the darkness of ignorance. And for no reason but that God loves me, he pulls me out of that pit and places my feet on solid rock. And I just say, God, how good are you? And and so... This is what's going on. Now, the beauty about this kind of song that Moses is singing here, that David sang there, is that he is singing his heart out and the children of Israel are singing their heart out to an audience of one. To an audience of one. We tend to think that we would only want to have a big production, uh, all singing, all dancing operation When we got a big audience, if we don't have a big audience, why? You know, then we'll just play a little ukulele and move on. No, an audience of one. This song, this beautiful praise, this effusive recognition of who God is and his goodness towards, in this case, Moses and the children of Israel, in David's case, himself, in our case, ourselves going to an audience of one. And again, I want to reemphasize That our time of worship on Sunday is no less significant. Remember what David says there in that psalm. He says that if many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. You sit here on a Sunday morning and we start praise and worship. I would venture to say that every one of you have a list that's too numerous to be numbered. You could never put them in order because they happen 360 degrees, 365 days a year. And this is a time to open your heart and to express that thanksgiving and what God is doing. He says there uh, back in verse one of, of this first stanza of chapter 15, he says that uh, he, the horse and rider he has thrown in the sea the Lord is my strength and my song. He has also become my salvation. Now think about this. The horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. This is something that the, the army of Israel could have never done on their own. Here is this very powerful fighting force. And, they, and that fighting force is bearing down on God's people. And how invincible is God's people when God the Lord is fighting on their behalf. And if you look forward in the history of the children of Israel, you will find several key moments where the Lord God steps up and fights for his people. Judges chapter 7, there's Gideon. He's got a force of 30,000 men ready to meet 150,000 Midianites. And the Lord, the first thing the Lord says to him is, those that you have with you are too many. Say what, Lord? Uh, We're outnumbered five to one here. Five, six to one. The Lord says, yeah, no, no, no. Tell anybody who's concerned about their prospects in this battle, uh, if they're concerned, they can go home. So two-thirds of Gideon's army is gone right there. You know the story. It gets winnowed down to 300 old fat guys. And there he is with this, this group. And are they getting the latest and greatest technological weapons? No, you're going to have a torch, a pitcher, and a trumpet. And he sends these 300 men to surround the hills where this massive army of Midianites are. And ultimately what happens is they follow the directions of the Lord, which is to smash those pitchers that then expose their lighted torches and they play a little trumpet And before you know it, the army of the Midianites, their swords are against one another and the Lord is raining down fire. I mean, it just becomes this this confused self-annihilation simply because the Lord said so. Another opportunity uh, that's yet in our future where the Lord will supernaturally fight for his people is the battle of Gog and Magog. That's told to us in Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39. Here is now the, the children of Israel. The, the Israelites are in their land in our time. And they are dwelling there without walls. And the peoples of the north, and we don't need to go into the, um, dive deeply into who will be part of that company that comes down upon them, but it's peoples of the north, will come down to take a spoil from Israel. And they will come in such such a, a horde that it's looking really bad for God's people. And I'm just going to read to you the first eight verses of chapter 39 because now the battle is going to take place and before a shot is fired, before a missile is launched, the Lord is there to show his people and all of the peoples of the world that he is the Lord God. And that his people are the apple of his eye. And so you read in Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 1. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you. Man, those are words I hope I never hear. The Lord God is against you. Gog and prince of Rosh Meshech and Tubal and I will turn you around and lead you on bringing you up from the far north and bring you against the mountains of Israel then I will knock the bow out of your left hand and cause the arrows to fall out of your right hand you shall fall upon the mountains of israel you and all your troops and the peoples who are with you i will give you to birds of prey of every sort and to the beasts of the field to be devoured you shall fall on the open field for i have spoken says the lord god now get that it's merely because he said it that it's true and I will send fire on Magog. And on those who live in security in the coastal lands. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Now not only is he going to vanquish the armies attacking Israel. But also to go back to their countries. And, and to bring his judgment upon them there. So I will make my holy name known in the midst of my people Israel. You see there is some motivation. This display of awesome power is to reinforce and maybe rekindle the awareness of the people of Israel that he is their God and they are his people. And I will not let them profane my holy name anymore. Then the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. So now there's a second motivation, which is to say, I am unquestionably, indelibly putting my stamp of authorship on this major victory, So that the people of the world will know who I am. Surely it is coming and it shall be done, says the Lord. This is the day of which I have spoken. And so this is yet another opportunity in our future where the Lord is going to make the same kind of statement that he makes here uh, regarding the Egyptians, which has the, the idea of let me reinforce the faith of my people that they will know who I am and that I am for them. And let me reinforce to the nations that would oppress or oppose them that I am with them and I am against you. And that is the message that's coming out. Now they say the Lord is my strength and my song. The song follows the strength, right? You know, if you've got, like they say, everything is funny when you're making money. Everything is happy when you are winning And if the Lord is your strength, it cannot be exceeded. It cannot be trumped. It cannot be vanquished. It cannot be defeated. And so uh, that leaves a lot of time to write songs. And you know that the song of your heart is the security that you feel being one of God's children. Singing joy of the Christian life is that we fight from victory. We don't fight from defeat. We don't fight with the prospect of defeat. We fight from victory. The victory's been won. We have a time on earth to endure, to live for Christ, to trust him and walk in his way, to be sanctified while we're here on the earth, to know that in the world we'll have tribulation, but be of good cheer. God has overcome the world. But we have eternal life. It is finished, Jesus said from the cross. Now, he says something else there in verse 2. And he has become my salvation. Again, if you look at in your mind, the picture in your mind of the children of Israel, backs against the sea, Egyptian army cascading down upon them, the the ability to to deliver their own salvation was less than zero. And and yet they are completely delivered. They, They are literally walking through a sea That is piled up on either side of them like walls of water. And then that very same sea is collapsed upon their enemy and destroys them. They are saved. And that salvation is not their might. It's not their power, their ingenuity, their tactics, their strategy. It is God. And their song is our song because he is our salvation. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Not the way, the truth, and giver of life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Our life is a life in Christ. He has saved us from an enemy or enemies we never could have vanquished on our own, being sin, the flesh, and the devil. And so our salvation comes directly from him. We live because he lives Uh, and and so he's our strength our song our salvation and therefore we praise him we we can recount what he has done here that pharaoh's chariots army etc cast into the sea they sank to the bottom like a stone now we come to the second stanza which is found between verses six and ten and we read your right hand O lord has become glorious in power Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. And in the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the water were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. You see, anybody who wants to say, well, some weird wind came and blew the water back so that they can walk across the dry land. No, in multiple places, it says the water was stacked on either side. There were walls of water on both sides. Clearly, the water they went through was plenty deep. And the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Now, if you love the Lord as I do, and I know you do, we should glory in the defeat of God's enemies. Not to say that we we wish anyone to be damned. We wish anyone to suffer the, the flames of hell. But at the point at which God sees in his mind, in his heart, that judgment is due. We can rest assured that those individuals to whom that judgment will be rendered have been given every chance, every opportunity to be right with God. And God, who knows the hearts of every man and woman knows when when grace and mercy no longer can be rendered and the only thing that's left is judgment. And we see here in our uh, in our time we see enemies of God growing up and springing up and coming forth everywhere. The things that you can see in the normal news cycles on the normal news pages, the interest groups that now have YouTube channels that anyone can access are so openly at enmity with God, that it it, it, honestly, it it would make make evil people of times past blush Mm -hmm. with the kinds of things we're seeing right now. Uh, We mentioned during the prayer time about this whole um, brouhaha that's going on now with Target and some of the clothing and, and products that they're offering, only to find out that the designer that they are using to create these products is an avowed, open evangelistic satanist and there's no they don't even blush at this you can't tell me that a major corporation doesn't do due diligence concerning anybody they partner with for something that they are going to promote in such a conspicuous way and yet there we are Um, and so you see the words of the enemy quoted here that you know i will overtake i will divide and spoil my heart shall be satisfied on them i'll draw my hand My hand shall destroy them. This is the way the people who are engendering the enemy view the cause of Christ. View those of us who stand for Christ. Is that they will will bury us. They will defeat us. They will annihilate us. They will rub out our influence on the society. You know, it's interesting. Um, The enemies of God that that will alter we'll see in a moment here the enemies of God the enemy of God's people they will remember this incident and they will have fear about the Jewish people because they know the God that fights for them and you know it's interesting that a lot of the blowback and the persecution that Christians suffer today And and I think about our brothers and sisters in India, in Iran, in China, in Nigeria, and other places around the world. But also now, we're starting to see a little bit of the the prelude of that here in this country. And I've come to the conclusion that the reason for this persecution, let's just take it in our country, because we're not necessarily persecuted by other religions. We're persecuted in this country by people who don't believe in God at all, or at least say they don't. They're either atheists or agnostic. And um, they they worship science, basically, and they worship human reason, and they view humanity's evolution as a species as the answer to everything. And now they're holding on to a new hope, which is transhumanism. And yet they view us and they they push back on us. Um, They arrest a kid for distributing Bibles in Canada and these kinds of things. And the reason is very simple. They fear our God. How do I know that? They say they don't believe in our God. They say they don't believe in Mickey Mouse. But they're okay with people who wear Mickey Mouse shirts, have Mickey Mouse on their watch. And so if they have no fear about a cartoon character that they don't believe, and they say they don't believe in our God, then why do they oppose us so vigorously? Because they fear our God. They fear our God because our God is transformational. Our God can change lives. Our God can rehabilitate minds. Our God can give new priorities. Our God could allow a, an adherent to the faith in Jesus Christ to surrender themselves for the sake of others. And that's terrifying to people who embrace the enemy. And so, and we're going to see that here, but here in verse six, says, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. Now, the right hand was thought to be, in times past and maybe even now, the hand of skill and power. And as a left-hander, I find that very disheartening. But this was always the way it was. In fact, one of the reasons why I brush my teeth with my right hand, even though I'm left-handed, is because I grew up in a Sicilian household where it was considered bad mojo to be left-handed and so as a kid I would pick up the toothbrush in my left hand and my grandmother and mother who was supervising would immediately take it out of that hand put it in this hand and over time that's how I brush my teeth if I tried to do it with my left hand I'd poke my eye out I just can't do it and this was the way people thought and so frankly This idea of the right hand being the hand of skill and power doesn't really apply to God. This is what you'd call an anthropomorphism. We give attributes of human beings to God so we can understand them better. But if you look in Scripture the right hand is all over the place. Psalm 45 verse 4, God's right hand teaches us. Psalm 48 10, God's right hand is full of righteousness. Psalm 77 verse 10, remembrance of the years of the right hand of the most high. Psalm 110 verse 1, the father invites the son to sit at his right hand. Habakkuk 2 16, the cup of God's judgment is held in his right hand. Ephesians 1 verse 20, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is the hand of power, of skill, uh, of action, of judgment, uh, of healing, etc. And this is the hand, the right hand of the Lord has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. This is simply to say that the Lord is using his power and might to stand for and um, and to bless his people. Then in the third stanza, which we pick up in verse 11, he says, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Now, let me just stop there. This is not an acknowledgement that there are other gods. This is a contrast, a dichotomy of, here's our God who can do things like this. Here's the so-called Egyptian pantheon of gods that God has just mocked through all of the 10 plagues that we saw. Their frog god, hectic, and, and their, their well, pharaoh himself being considered a, uh, a deity, and, and their sun god, and all these different gods, each plague had a way of poking in the eye of the concept of that god. And so when he says here, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Surely none of the Egyptian gods that they hold on to could do any of this. You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. This is a clear acknowledgement that the providence and the guiding hand of God is what has led them. It led them to a place that they thought was a catastrophe and a disaster. And it became a an opportunity for him to show them his glory, to show them his allegiance, his love, his dedication, his provision, his peace, his protection to them, that they might be able to prevail against this very, very formidable and formidable enemy. And so this, again, is, is another reason to worship. And then verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold. Of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. This is exactly what will happen in their near future. And you go to Joshua chapter 2. And they, the, the, the spies come in and they meet Rahab. And Rahab, immediately when she knows who they are, she remembers that that they are the, she says there, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. This is Joshua chapter two, verse 10. She knew, she's expressing the general knowledge of their people was those Israelites, their God is somebody not to fool with. Their God is the God. And then you see uh, in 1 in, um, Samuel chapter four, when the philistines and the israelites are getting ready for battle and the ark of the covenant is brought into the camp of the israelites and this roar goes up so loud that the philistines way over in their camp can hear it and they are quaking in their boots because they now know that the presence of that god and they even tell the tale again that god who did what he did to the egyptians is now in their camp woe is us and this is why uh, I say that the reason why we, will, we have and will and will even more so suffer persecution is because people fear our God. They can oppose him, but they will fear him because they've seen the power of God. Jesus said right at the beginning, before the, the church was even birthed, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And for 2,000 years, that has repeatedly and profoundly been proven out time and again. And this is why in the places where persecution is the white hottest are the places where the church is growing the fastest, the widest, and the deepest. Because in the, in the, in the fires of persecution is forged godly steel and, and, and it becomes something that, that becomes even more fearsome. You don't think that the Communist Chinese Party doesn't quake in its boots about this home church movement, which they seek to stamp out at every turn? Because those people are willing to die for their cause because they know the God they serve. They cannot be, they cannot be uh, intimidated. They ca- cannot be made fearful. And this is, this is, by the way, I'm reading a book right now. And I just, in the first chapter, just finished the first chapter. So I'm not in a place where I'm going to recommend it yet. But I was so enticed by the title, I had to buy it. The title of the book is Church of Cowards. And it's written by Matt Walsh. And the opening chapter lays out the case. This is let you know the church has been concerned about persecution and, and, and even persecution to death and so he 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 lays out this scenario of these barbarian atheic atheistic hordes that are going to come to our nation and they're going to stamp out they're going to persecute they're going to cut the heads off of christians so they can stamp out christianity and it goes on to detail how they go from denomination to group to christian to and they can't find anybody that they would consider to be dedicated enough to the cause of Christ that they would be worth killing. And ultimately, they just leave and say, I don't really find any Christians here. And it's it's kind of a tale, a, a frightening tale, to think that the way in which we hold out ourselves as the church to the world could be something that is so anemic and so... Uh, distant from christ that we wouldn't even be worth persecuting this is the premise that i'm seeing in this book but the point is if you are living the christian life in a way where you believe with every fiber of your being that you serve the god of the universe and he is a god of great power he is a god of profound love for you and for me and that he can literally do miracles in our lives you will live with humility and with courage. And that is terrifying to the enemies of God. So we read uh, the remainder of this beautiful song. Your people, The people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia, which we will see happens in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed, the mighty men of Moab. Trembling will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as stone till your people pass over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went in, went with his chariots and the horsemen into the sea, and the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Now notice what he says there in that last part about these people whom you purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. This is yet another uh, emphasis on the promise the land covenant that God has with his people. This is why uh, if people would just read what God has said and promised to his people, There would be no foolish talk about two-state solutions. There would be no uh, uh, embracing or humoring uh, countries in the world that that talk about annihilating Israel. That we would have a relationship with a country that is committed to the annihilation of Israel is, is patently dangerous for our country. That we would embrace a relationship with a country like Iran that is committed to the annihilation and removal of the children of Israel from the land, is, I mean, go back to Genesis chapter 12, and those who would bless God's people will be blessed, and those who would curse God's people will be cursed, and that we could have any kind of relation, any kind of alliance, that we could send aid, money, dollars to the leadership of Iran who are committed to undoing or attempting to undo the promise that God has given the Israelites concerning their land, to me, is very, very reckless. And we're seeing, we're, we're seeing judgments upon our land that we could very easily draw a line from to the kinds of things that we have, the policies that we have taken relative to God's people. The, the promises of God are clear. There's, there has been no abrogation of those promises. There's been no transfer of them. They are clearly stated. They are emphasized and reemphasized and repeated so that dummies like us will not miss them. And yet they're missed all the time. And okay, maybe you could say that secular politicians, of course they're going to miss it because they're not reading the book. But we have the same kind of error being made within those who should know better because they're studying the word of God and they're leading the flock, flock, flocks of God's people. And yet the, their, their, their teaching regarding Israel is contrary to what the word of God says. I think we're going to stop there. Next time we'll pick it up with the song of Miriam because Miriam brings this great little uh, song and dance troupe of the ladies into the thing and they're they're doing the doo-wops along with uh, Moses's song and then uh, we see the bitter waters made sweet uh, all very important things that set up what will become the wilderness wanderings of God's people let's go to him in prayer father God we thank you for tonight Lord we thank you Lord for the lessons that we learn through your deliverance of your people Israel Lord, the song that Moses is singing there, it's our song. He's singing our song, Lord. We have seen great and mighty things in our lives that are too numerous to mention. And we give you thanks and praise, God, for how wonderfully, how graciously, how mercifully you have shepherded us. You've saved us, Lord. You've saved us from the miry pit. You've planted our feet on solid rock, the rock that is Christ. And the water that comes forth from that rock is the water of life and the manna that comes from heaven heaven, and we hold in our laps as the word of God has sustained us as sustenance for our souls and our spirits and even our bodies, Lord. And we thank you for all of that, Lord. We could never express to the full magnitude our gratitude, our praise and our worship for who you are in our lives and what you've done for us, God. We are a grateful people. Lord, I pray a blessing over all that are here tonight to hear these words, Lord. I pray that because they were here to hear them, Lord, they will leave here with a confidence, with a peace, and with a heart of thanksgiving, knowing that they serve the same God who delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea, Lord. Thank you, Jesus, for meeting us here tonight. It's in your precious name we pray, amen. Amen, Amen. Amen. enjoy the evening.